Borukatah Adonai Eloheinu Menakaolam Asher Kitshana Bimitotav Etivanu La Sok Be Divre Torah Veharevna Adonai Eloheinu Et Divre Torateka Befinu Ufi Amka Beit Israel Venie Anaknu Vedzeteinu Vedzeete Amka Beit Israel Kulano Yodea Shemeka Velom De Torateka Lishma Baruch Ata Adonai Hamlamed Torah Leamo Yisrael Welcome to the Master Plan class for the week of Parsha Shmini. We are in Master Plan by Arye Carmel. Beautiful, beautiful book. And we are going to be in chapter 53 this week. And we're going to be talking about the calendar. One of the first things Hashem said to us when we were leaving Mitzrayim is, guess what? Time. In other words... The first mitzvah given to us upon our freedom from slavery, our beginning of being a part of the Exodus, the beginning of freedom from Egypt, all of that, freedom from slavery, freedom from sin, freedom from bondage and all that kind of stuff, it all started with time which I think is so interesting because we know time started with light. This is why we measure time or we measure speed by light years, you know, and the whole thing with that, all that science stuff. But just to bring down the fact that, you know, we have this whole concept of if you go at the speed of light, time seemingly stops. Hence, Superman flying so fast around the planet and reversing it and ultimately ended up rewinding time. So all that kind of stuff to really take into account, but that's not really uh, what I'm trying to get at. I just think the the interesting relationship with speed and time are, are very, very uh, neat to think about. So I want to start with Gadai, aka G Shekel Shlita of BetYisrael.org. He brings this down. He says, Shmini is the 26th reading from the Torah, and the word Shmini means eight. Now, if you just look at Shmini for just a moment, um, you have the word for Shimon which is oil, and then you have yod-yod, or yud-yud, which is typically used as an abbreviation for the divine name, Hashem. So the oil of Hashem is basically what we're looking at, and if you go back to Parsha Vayikra and Parsha Zav, I was talking about how Mashiach is brought forth, or Sliga, Parsha Zav. So Mashiach Mondays for Parsha Zav, I was going into how the word Mashiach used in the written Torah applied to the Kohen Hagadol, and it was specifically about the anointing oil that was placed upon him. And many commentaries bring this down. Uh, Rabbi Monk is one of them that talks about the Kohen Gadol being likened to the angel of Hashem. But we will digress, or we have been digressing. So 
just know this parasha has a lot to do with Hashem and we're talking about time and Hashem was like I'm going to give you the ability to use time to the advantage of your freedom is what basically this is so when we were given this mitzvah it was specifically given to Moshe and Aharon and it was for the Rosh Hodesh so we talked about Rosh Hodesh. We've talked about the Chagim, the Moedim, the festivals. And it's interesting that if you don't know when Rosh Hodesh is, you don't know when the festival happens, which is a whole reason why in antiquity we had the Diaspora Day, which is kept in as a traditional thing today. So when that all is said, um, there was like this whole thing of, well, was Rosh Hodesh on this day or was it on that day? And that had to be compensated for somewhat uh, when it was unknown. So the fact that we know when the Yom Tov happens today and when Rosh Hodesh happens, you know, it's already set. It's in the calendar. We see it. So technically, but not technically, uh, we wouldn't be uh, completely rigid to say do um, you have to do the diaspora day to make sure you get it right? Um, because that's really not where it comes from. But just to point out, that was what the diaspora day originally was for, to say, hey, just the compensation. But I want to point out that no one does a diaspora day for Yom Kippur. What's up with that? <laughs> right? Um, anyway, so I could go on and on forever about it, but you got to know when Rosh Hodesh is to know when the other Yom Tov happens. And when this goes as well, um, you're looking at cycles within cycles within cycles. And there's a couple of different things that I want to point out. Uh, number one from my Havruta. Let me go over here. And he talks about time. He brought down um, the Rambam. Let's see here. Spiritual worlds to come. Okay, so there's this beautiful timeline. And I'm actually not going to post this on um, Insta because this is ridiculous. But if you need the file, just let me know and I can send it to you. So it's got this beautiful arrow pointing towards the right side of the page. From left to right, we see the sixth millennia, which is the 6,000 years of existence, which is now. We use physicality to serve Hashem. At the end of this, Mashiach arrives. So somewhere within this 6,000 years or at the end, we definitely have Mashiach. Just as a side note, apparently as of the 27th of March, it is currently April the 6th, um, we have this whole picture of uh, a gentleman, I uh, don't even know how to pronounce his name, but apparently Mashiach ben David is here, and he's been revealed and he's walking around Israel right now. And I only found out about it this week, so... I think it's interesting, Parsha Shmini, Mashiach ben David here in Israel and everything that's going on in the world. So apparently he's some kind of prodigy and things like that. Uh, I'm not really 
going crazy about anything right now. I'm still praying for Mashiach, so just as a heads up, but find it very interesting that here we go. Like, this is a big push to be like, all right, reinstitute the Sanhedrin, reinstitute the Beit HaMikdash. We got Mashiach. Let's do this. So we do know we have to have Mashiach before we can have a Sanhedrin and all that kind of stuff. So it's just a whole lot that, you know, Hashem uses everything anyway. So this is just one one more domino that has to fall and, and keep going. So Bezrat Hashem, we are so, so close. And this is why us yearning and speaking it out, saying we want Mashiach now. Like telling Hashem we want Mashiach now is such a big deal. It's very important. The month of Nisan that we're in right now, this is the month of the mouth. Like we need to be using our speech for everything that we need. If you need deliverance from struggles and bondages and temptations and you need Parnassah, you need all kinds of support and you need health and livelihood, you got to speak these things out and take advantage of the mazal of this month. So anyway, uh, the seventh millennia, this is Mashiach followed by destruction. So this is the Shabbatical or the um, Shabbat year or Shabbat millennia where there is seemingly nothingness. This is where the heavens and the earth are renewed and all that kind of things like that. We have uh, a semblance of this, which is the seventh year of the cycles on the Hebrew calendar and by extension the 50th year which is called the Yovel the Jubilee and this is where like everything returns back to its original states and you don't uh, do any kind of um, manufacturing productivity to it you let their land rest you know you cease from your labors and those kinds of things uh, if you're a farmer now, obviously, if you're uh, a rancher, like with cattle and sheep and all that, you're fine. But as far as working the land, nope, we're not doing that. So <clears throat> so if you're a farmer, then, you know, you are definitely uh, more turned up than I am because you're basically saying, Hashem, you have to take care of me for the whole year. And not only that, since I haven't been working for a year when the next year starts i'm going to start with everything that i've had from the previous cycle uh the sixth year of that cycle so i need to have my sixth year take care of me for the seventh year and then the first year of the new cycle so this is a three-year crop and if you think about it, if you go six years into a cycle, the sixth year should be the weakest year. And it's like, no, nah, I'm going I'm to bless it. It's going to last for three years. So that way, when you're getting back out in the field, you're getting your land all put squared away and pun intended because squaring it. But um, corners of your field, leaving the gleanings for the poor and all that. But yeah, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be fine. And so that way, when the second year starts, uh, you're back up in momentum and you're rolling, you know, and you got, you can eat of that now, whatever happened on the first year. Cause it may have, you know, took a minute to get started, get some momentum and things going. And, you know, it's like a smooth, seamless transition Hashem provides. 
And this is all in the mitzvah of Shemitah, which only happens in the land of Israel. It doesn't apply to anything else, no matter how theological you make it. Because remember, Torah is not really about theology. It's really about the mitzvot. So anyway, so there's going to be a millennia where it's like the seventh year and it's just like, boom, like it's a, it's a sabbatical year. So, or millennia. And then you have the eighth millennia. This is the resurrection, the world reconstruction during resurrection, uh, worthy of purified souls. Uh, this, and by the way, the resurrection can happen before then too. So just side note, then you're going to have the ninth millennia. This is limited expression of the body and the soul is more dominant. Oh yes. Cannot wait for that. Right now the body is like, I'm sleepy. And the soul's like, I'm not. And Yeshua was telling us what the body is weak, but the spirit is willing, you know, that kind of thing. So that's going to reverse. So that's a few millennia from now. Tenth millennia. It says the tenth millennia and on because there's going to be more. It says the soul dominates the body and the body has no control. So, you know, these bodies are going to be uh, eternal. They're going to be imperishable. What we had in the beginning before we ate from the eight, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is where first Corinthians chapter 15 comes into play where it says we will put this body in the ground, just like we put a seed in the ground and something of different than what went in comes out, you know? So we put this body in a different body is going to come out one that will be imperishable. So we'll take off the mortal and put on immortality. We'll take off the perishable and put on the imperishable. So those kinds of things. So these are uh, what we have to look forward to, which is why it's so awesome now that we're speaking about time, because time is really this uh, construct that governs us now. But when you get outside of creation and even recreation, however that looks, I mean, that's we're talking a whole different ball game. So you have these anchor points now that, uh, you know, cause the sages bring down that every time we experience a Yom Tov, that the same Kedusha at the original event is available there. So when we celebrated Pesach, it was literally like we were sitting in Mitzrayim and all of that Hashem was doing was taking place on that night, you know, as we're headed towards Shavuot, you know, uh, the same thing, it'll be, the mountain uprooting, the loud shofar blast, the seeing the sounds, all that, all that potential is in the atmosphere. And so this is why there are specific points on the calendar, specific days, specific, you know, everything, the different things we have to do for certain times, because it is only at that point that that is available. So if you're a fan of Doctor Strange and you know about the, the ring uh, traveling device that he has where he can open up a portal and move and go go somewhere else than different from where he is, like teleporting, teleportaling, if you will, uh, that's exactly what time is uh, 
to the Hebrew calendar. It's like, if you really want to go back to Sinai, then be here on this day at this time. You really want to, um, you know, get back in the, in the temple and be in the clouds of glory, then be here at this time for this whole eight days, you know, talking about Sukkot, you know, and things like that. So, the, the way time works, it literally integrates the physical and the spiritual and then unifies dimensions that that are usually not in alignment on uh, a day-to-day basis. This is why you can't just say, well, I'm going to celebrate my Pesach here or I'm going to celebrate my Shabbat on this day. You know, there's a lot of thought that you can take a Sabbath whenever you want. Well, if you really understand what the Shabbat is, and what actually happens on the seventh day, I guarantee you, if you try to do all that stuff on a different day, it is not going to be the same. And side note, uh, you're going to put yourself in a very, very spiritually bad predicament because what is the major thing that we do on the Shabbat in particular? It's known as the Kiddush, and that is us standing up That's why we stand when we say the Kiddush. We're standing up before all of creation and proclaiming Hashem as creator. And saying, this is the day Hashem ceased from his labor and he blessed it. If we say Hashem did that on a third day or a fourth day, or let's just go with the really popular one, on our first day, on a Yom Rishon. Think about that for a second. You're saying, Hashem, listen you wrote Genesis and all that kind of stuff. No, you, you did not do that. You did this. That's called lying. When is it ever okay to tell Hashem that he's a liar? Hashem says there's one who is a liar and truth is not in him. And let's just go ahead and say that's denying Hashem, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Torah, Yeshua, Mashiach, you know, the father and the son, wisdom and understanding and knowledge, like you're just, you're rejecting all that. The liar is just against all of that. So you tell Hashem that he was a first day of the week rester. He was a first day of the week creator uh, or ceased from creating and began to bless creation on the first day. I mean, think about that for a moment, lighting candles to go into the first day of the week and saying, this is the day that Hashem refrained from all his labors. And this is the day he blessed. This is the covenant he he made between himself and Israel. Oh, wait, no, that's not important for first day people. It's more about uh, it's a covenant. It's well, what is covenant? You know, and you start to get into a very slippery slope. So see how bad this goes really quickly when you start really just kind of thinking things through and speaking them out loud. So this is why it's important to keep the Shabbat on the day Hashem said keep it on. Because if not, you get into a lot of logistical nightmares and just things that you don't want to put yourself in on a spiritual plane. So there is that. Uh, The other thing is... This is from Benny B. Let's see if I can find it. And I believe this is on the uh, Sephirat HaOmer. Talking about the many jubilees 
the Yovelin. Let's see here. Give me one moment, please, to look this up. Because, you know, I don't like to say things without sourcing it out. There we go. Is this it? I hope so. Okay. I guess we're going to start with this. Ibn Ezra, or Aven Ezra, as some like to say. And uh, Bezrat Hashem will get to some things that he has on Isaiah that have to do with the calendar and this fancy holiday called Schmeister that just happened this past week. Just a heads up there. Shameless plug announcement. So let's go with this. This is cited in Rambam, Ramban on the commentary to Parsha Bahar. And this is what it says. Bend now your ear to understand that which I am permitted to inform you about it in the words that I will cause you to hear. And if you will be worthy, you will contemplate them and understand them. I have already written in Seder Bereshit that the six days of creation, all the days of the world, thus the seven days of the week, allude to that which he created in the process of creation and the seven years of the sabbatical year, sabbatical year, sabbatical cycle, refer to that which will occur during the creation of all the days of the world. In the case of a servant, the seventh year is also like a complete jubilee. So what just happened right there? The seven days of the week encompass all the days of creation. So much so that there was actually a beautiful drop from Rabbi Shavile Pinchas Rabbi Pekas Friedman Shlita about how each Yom Rishon, each Yom Shani, each Yom Shlishi, you know, all the days of the week, the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Shabbat. So each day of the week, they're all connected. So much so that every time you get to Monday, it's connected to the previous Monday. And what you're actually supposed to be doing is taking the different sparks of your soul that shine into your body because different uh, facets of your soul shine into your body on a Monday, then it does on a Tuesday, then it does on a Wednesday, then it does on a Thursday, so on and so forth, until you have all your full life. When, when you have the fullness of the years that Hashem has allotted for us to live, so by the time you end your life, you will have had every single ray of your soul shine into your body. And those corresponded to different days of the week that that ray of your soul was meant to rectify. Now, again, this is an absolutely ridiculous blue screen concept. But all that to say is there's a reason why it feels like you're stuck in a loop 
because every single time you get to a particular day of the week, there's a specific elevation that you're supposed to do to exceed the previous point that you were at that day. So let's just stick with Mondays for a minute because Monday, oh my gosh, right? That's the only day of the week Hashem didn't even say it was good, you know, <laughs> right? When you look at creation, the second day of the week, it's like Hashem didn't say it was good. What happened, you know? And anyway, so that being said, you're looking at, so Monday last week, now you should be elevating Monday this week from where you were last week because that previous Monday is connected to this Monday. And so when the next Monday comes, you're to pull Monday up even more. So you're taking each day of the week and you're raising it up, like turning up the volume, hitting the dimmer switch, like turning it up, making it brighter. So each time you get to these days with that fragment of your soul that shines into your body, because not your full, your full soul, by the way, doesn't permeate your body. Like your neshama, like it's up in the heavenlies. And so you have literally, he calls them, uh, uh, Rabbi Shavile Pincus calls them neat zot zot, which is like soul zit zit. And it's basically like these little light fragments. And it's like, okay, so those you're supposed to use to pull up and lift up. So you lift up each day of the week. This is why Shaul Hashliach, Paul, the apostle, would say, make the most of your time. You know, make the most of your days. You know, season all your conversations. Things like that. Like you need to take every moment that you have and like, connect that thing up to the heavenlies and you have this week parsha shmini um it was oh yeah daily wisdom was talking about uh, managing ecstasy and not the pill but uh the 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 rapturous desire to be caught up in a shem and just go into the holy of holies and never come back like nadav and avihu did for this parsha it says that you're actually supposed to have that yearning to enter into these sublime spiritual levels, but not stay there and bring them back. So you have this whole thing of where you're raising things up, right? But then you have this idea of when you get to those high levels, pull them back down. So you have this up and down scenario going on, this ascending and descending kind of thing. And that literally is what our living is supposed to be. So with all that being said, that's the first thing Ebenezer was bringing down from this segment here that I just read about the six days of creation and the Jubilee. So the shape of time, this is uh, Rabbi or Slika. I always keep calling him Rabbi. It's a Freudian slip, Benny B. Shlita. <laughs> So Ladder of Jacob, he is bringing this down on Sephirat HaOmer because we are counting the Omer currently. So, oh, let me, this is a beautiful opportunity to tell everybody where we're at on the Omer count without freaking out. Because why? You don't tell people what day of the Omer it is if they haven't counted. You don't tell people what day of the Omer it is if they haven't counted. So here's a safe way to do it. You can say, well, last night we counted nine days of the Omer. 
So as of this podcast, anyway, that's what I did. So yeah, last night I counted nine days of the Omer. Ah, so there you go. You can figure out where you're at in the Omer count now. All right. Anyway, just a beautiful opportunity to, because uh, I, I never get to tell people that. I never get to go, oh, well, yesterday I counted such and such days of the Omer. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, thank you for allowing me to share that with you. All right, back to Sephirat Omer from Benny B, Ladder of Jacob. It says the shape of time in Greek thought is a straight line connecting point A to point B or point A and point B. So straight line, that's the Greek way to think of time. In truth, the shape of time is a helicoidal spiral like a DNA helix ascending to higher levels and runs as time passes. Okay, so we got a little spiral going. Think of a shofar, right? The spiraling. You got the narrow point opening all the way out to the big point. So it says, this is the shape of the shofar, which contains the Fibonacci spiral design growing to the opening of the shofar blast. The shofar blast signifies freedom on Yom Kippur. This is the higher level macrocosmic Shemitah called the Yovel or Jubilee. So that is a shofar blast. So time itself is actually a shofar. And as we're going through time, it's like the, the air that is breathed from the blower through the shofar all the way coming out to the opening where the sound would be and the actual effects of that sound. And that would be the jo the Yovel, the Jubilee. So as we're going through time, we're leading up to a sound, you know? So, I mean, just kind of thinking about the way we live is like being inside of a shofar. And it's like, at some point there's going to be a big blast. So the blast of the shofar is a Jubilee. It's a Yovel. And Yeshua himself says, I came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. You know, this is what he brought down in the Gospels. So then it goes on to say here. The Yovel mirrors the counting of the Omer in many ways. This brings us beyond the level of sevens and into the realm of eight. The unit of 49 always symbolizes the limit of reach of natural time and the limits of nature in general. Take, for example, the unit of 49 years in the Jubilee area, era, which exactly parallel the 49 days of the Omer. The Torah refers to the 50 years of Jubilee period as forever. The number 50 is beyond the realm of multiples of seven and belongs to the series of eights. And represents the part of the universe that lies beyond what is directly visible in the natural world. The 49 days between Pesach, Passover, and Shavuot which are the 49 days of counting the Omer symbolize the painful climb out of the natural world of the seven days of creation to the spiritual peak of Mount Sinai 
to the level of the eighth day. That's from Rabbi Nelson Wise, which is Up for the Count, is the article on H.com. So Up for the Count by Rabbi Nelson Wise on H.com. On H.com. Okay, so let's see. Something about so many jubilees. What is that word? Looking for a source here real quick. You know, I won't be, I probably won't be able to find it, but I'm thinking of, there was some, some source about the, uh, the number of jubilees that would pass and something to do with the Alam Habai and redemption. So I don't know. Uh, I think I was thinking to put that in my notes before I got in the booth to record this podcast, but I did not. So Sleeka. So let me just go over here to Torah Wellsprings for this week and bring this down because we're in the cycle of counting the Omer. This is on Torah Wellsprings. It says they were and continue to be days of preparation. So we're in like this perpetual cycle of prep days. (laughs) Again, moving through the shofar. That's literally what counting the Omer is. is like moving towards Shavuot, where the sound of the shofar will be blessed. Bezrat Hashem, may we hear the sound of the final shofar that heralds, bleh, that heralds the final geula. The bigger of the two horns of the Akedah ram that Hashem is going to blow at some point. May that be so. He blew the the smaller one at the giving of the Torah on Shavuot uh, on Mount Sinai. And so he'll be blowing the bigger one uh, in time to come. May it be this year. So anyway, days of preparation. But when we study about the Yidden, the Jews in the desert, we discovered that they didn't only go to high level, higher levels. There were many failings during these 50 days. Man, you talk about sobriety because sometimes you just feel like, man, I'm on top of the world. And other times you're like, I got ran over by a train and I'm drowning. I don't know how I'm drowning after I got hit by a train. Does that insinuate the train is on a bridge next to the ocean? Just kidding. I don't know where I'm going. Okay, don't listen to me on that part. Listen to this, though says they were in Rephidim and Chazal tell us that they weren't learning Torah sufficiently. It's like, how are you not learning Torah sufficiently? Counting the Omer and headed towards Shavuot. Like you're anticipating the Torah. Don't you think you would study it? It's like, nah, not, not us, not in the, not in the wilderness. We're like, do, do, do. I don't know what to do. I'm thirsty. I'm going to die. Were there not a great enough graves in Egypt? And it's like, dude, you're walking towards Mount Sinai 
and the sea just split and you're eating mana. What is the deal? Anyway, so if you're thinking counting the Omer is like fail proof, foolproof, and like it's supposed to be all these good days and you're you're just gonna be acing it every day. Nope. It didn't work in the wilderness. And guess what? We were surrounded by the clouds of glory. Hashem was leading us. I would think going out on a very, very big limb saying, if we could fail in the wilderness with Hashem in front of us and surrounded by clouds of glory with clothes that didn't wear out and shoes that didn't wear out, eating manna, if we could fail and have these issues, don't you think we could fail just a little bit during these days and these times and during this season? So the admonishment is in the encouragement, I would say, would be keep going because that's what we did in the wilderness. We kept going to Mount Sinai. And wouldn't you know, the most epic of failures happened when we got to Mount Sinai because not only 40 days later, which is less than an Omer count, we made a golden calf. It's like, dude, did we not learn from the past 50 days? And now we're going to go another 40 days and make a golden calf. That means for 90 days, we were just like, just not doing, just not doing it, not making it. 90 days of epic fails with the 90th day being the most epic of the fails. Like, think about that for a moment. You're just kind of like, and we're holy, holy, holy. Because, you know, I'm Yisrael Chai. Now I save Anishma people. And it's like, yeah, the ones who made the golden calf who complained about is Hashem with us or not? And Amalek came and attacked us. And, oh, we're thirsty. Hashem brought us out here to die. Like those people. Yep, that's who we are, by the way. So let us not be so um, boastful to think that we're above that because we're not. I know I'm not. And I'm grateful that Hashem has given me this great cloud of witnesses <laughs> for the good and for the bad. Because if if we ever get to a place of thinking, yeah, we're better than those Jews that were in the wilderness, and I can't believe they did that. This is the same picture we have with the 12 Talmudim, the 12 disciples of Yeshua. We think, how did these people not get he wasn't talking about physical bread? How did these people not get that he was talking about doing the will of his father as his food? You know, um, they didn't get the parables and he died and he was buried and resurrected and they they lost their minds thinking there's no way he can come back and all our hopes are dashed. And we're like, come on, guys. Or when there was a great storm and the Talmudim were all in the boat and she was sleeping and they're like, hey, don't you care that we're perishing? And he's like, shalom to the wind and the waves um guys why did you have faith why did you have little faith why did you doubt you know and we think yeah you shouldn't have doubted you know he can control the wind and the waves i'm just saying we see all these crazy examples and we think to ourselves like i can't believe they thought that way i can't believe they did that and it's like 
Well, guess what? What kind of problems and challenges are we facing in our lives? And how are we doing with them? Because the thing is, Hashem is like, hello, I'm right here. If you just reach out to me, if you just look over here, you know, I'm freaking out about my car. And all of a sudden, here comes a lot of money to fix my car. And I'm like, well, I could have just asked, <laughs> you know, which at after initially freaking out about it and being at my wits end, I did ask. And now it's here. So Baruch Hashem is just sometimes it takes us a, a minute, you know, and it, and it's OK. That's the whole point of why I'm reading this. When we originally counted the Omer, we were going through a lot of fails. Just a lot of like, guys, seriously? You know, um, I overheard a question because I was quote unquote ear hustling, as someone would like to say, which is eavesdropping for those who don't speak jive. And <laughs> it's funny because my coworkers know I'm the apparently the lit Torah guy because I'm just like okay don't ask that guy a question because he'll just drop the drop a mountain on you and be like okay anything else and it's like no I was just asking a simple question anyway the they were talking and they looked at me like will you let us have our conversation and I'm like dude I'm just working like I'm not even listening to you but what are you talking about now that you asked because you know opportunity right so he goes, yeah, so I was asking my pastor, like, do you think that God knew about the different disciples that Yeshua would choose, like, and all their actions, and he still chose them? You know, like, this whole thing about, you know, Yeshua's going around picking Talmudim, and it's like, does he or does he not? Uh, have the connection of knowing okay one's going to stab him in the back everybody else is going to run away one's going to deny him three times and yet he's going to invest three years of information into them shouts out to stav soldat shlita the winter soldier avenger of ours known as etan ben amet uh, he was bringing up, well, in antiquity, it used to take three years to read through the Parashot from Bereshit through the end of Debarim. It used to take three years. It was a three-year cycle. Right now, we do it in one-year cycles. So anyway, the cycle of a parasha is the ministry of Yeshua here on the earth. So just say lie on that because it's just like, What? <laughs> Think about how much more of the Torah you could really ingest if it took you three years to get through all of the Torah portions. Like that would be epic. Anyway, so he was saying all that, and I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, the same way Hashem knew that Israel would make a golden calf, and he was just like, oh, I'm going to give them the Mishkan, I'm going to give them the, the rock, and I'm going to give them some manna, and I'm going to bring them to this mountain. I'm going to take them to the sea. You know, I'm going to free them from Egypt, which no one ever got freed from Egypt, much less a whole nation. This is why we read that particular paragraph in the Arvit, the Ma'ariv, the nighttime prayers 
uh, every night because it's a ridiculous miracle that the whole nation of Israel was able to be set free from Egypt. That's just that's outrageous. Like that's never happened. No one ever left Egypt unless they were allowed to. You know, like you can't just go, oh, well, thanks, Egypt. I appreciate the time here. I'm leaving now. Egypt was like, no, no, no. You don't get to leave unless we say you leave. But this one time, Hashem was like, no, my people are going to leave because I say they need to leave. And Egypt's like, okay. Most of us are dead, but okay, you know, kind of thing. So we can't stop you, right? But anyway, Hashem was like, yeah, I'm going to do all this stuff for him. And it's just like, so while we were yet sinners, you know, kind of thing, Hashem was doing all this stuff. So, yeah, anyway, uh, I didn't ever get to say any of that, but it was just a beautiful thought I got to have for myself. And here it is on the podcast for you. Um, not that you wanted to know that. I don't know. But just thinking about that, because, you know, that applies to you and me, right? Like each one of us who follow Hashem, like Hashem was like, oh, yeah, I'm bringing you in. You be in covenant with me. Come on. Circumcise yourself. Circumcise your heart. Follow me, you know. Here's my Mashiach, you know, I reveal Yeshua to you, you know, and it's just like, all right, you're going to be with me. You in. All right, cool. And it's like one mess up, uh, another mess up, a whole lifetime of mess ups, a lot of repentance, a lot of Hashem. I'm so sorry. And all that kind of stuff. Hashem already knew this stuff and he still chose us. This is outrageous. Like I Anyway, I don't need to talk about that. Okay, so they were at Rephidim, and Chazal tell us that they weren't learning Torah sufficiently. Noted by Rafu Yadehem Midivre Torah. They relaxed their hands of the words of Torah. So they barely opened their humash. They did not tune in to Rabbi Trugman Shlita on Zoom. They did not tune into the Musar class with Batya and Leah, both of them, Shlita. You know, they didn't like, they didn't tune into any of that stuff. By the way, the Musar class is now on Zoom. Get you Zoom. Uploaded to Vimeo, the Magging Yushenu Vimeo, that is, because Magging Yushenu has a YouTube account, but we don't post on YouTube. So. For those of you who find out, you type in Magin Yashenu on YouTube and it pulls up something else. Selah. Did not need to be said. Honestly, I don't know why I said that. But anyway, I just got a little turned up. Let's get back on track. Okay. And they questioned whether Hashem was with them. So you weren't studying Torah and then you're like, is Hashem with us? I find that very interesting that the correlation to is Hashem with us and studying Torah are totally a thing. Because if you're studying Torah, you will know Hashem is with you. Because what Hashem says, wherever my name is called upon, there I will come and bless you. Hence why we recite the bracha before studying the Torah, because Hashem literally comes to study Torah with you. Because you have invoked his name, which is why we don't just flippantly throw the name of Hashem around. We don't just go, okay, I don't know this. 
Hashem that, you know, like we don't just do that, which begs to mention, you know, the JC, like people just throw that word out and they use it as a swear word. And you're just like, surely that's not a thing. And it's like, oh yeah, it totally is. So anyway, this is the, one of the top 10 and Shem says, don't, don't use my name in vain. Because when you call on the name of Hashem, he he shows up. He he comes there. It's like boom, you call me. What you what you need? Which one of the fun things I love doing to people when they they be like, oh blah blah blah. You know they'll say God or Lord or J C or J or whatever, and I'm like, what you calling him for? And they be looking at me like, what? Hit me with the, what are you talking about? Anyway. Because it's just like, dude, you're invoking it. Like, if you're calling a shim, you might want to have a reason for it. Just as a side note, I was reading in the Hizkuni, uh, and it was commentary on Exodus, and it was saying that if you're so used to just uh, flippantly throwing Hashem's name out there, you will come to error and blaspheming the name of Hashem and bring yourself into the unforgivable sin. Let me read that. That one is like so important that it's just kind of like, why don't we uh, take some minutes here and read it? He's Exodus 20 verse seven. It says, do not make a habit of prefacing any parts of your speech by invoking the name of God Unless it's a pseudonym, like Hakadosh Baruch, or uh, no, like HKBH or Yod Yod or something like that. Like, in other words, refraining from saying that one of the names of Hashem. It says, even if you say it is the truth, the very habit of uttering God's name on too many occasions will lead you to do so when it is a blasphemy. Blasphemy comes from the word nakav, which is the word for to pierce or puncture. Like um, to tear apart like perforated paper, like to rend the name of Hashem. This comes from Vayikra 25.11, Leviticus 25.11, Parsha Amor. Make sure I got that right. 25.11, or is it 24? Let's see. Let's do 24.11 just to be safe. Yeah, it's 24. This comes from Vayikra 24.11. Leviticus 24.11 teaches you all about blaspheming the name of Hashem. So anyway... Uh, and it says, or when it is an outright lie, if that were to happen, it would result in an unforgivable sin. I.e., so don't take my name in vain. And again, the importance of the brakot that we recite in our lives every day, we invoke the presence of the name of Hashem not only to come to us, but to be magnified in the world. So 
there's a old song that I used to sing in Edom in the church in Rome and Christianity where it was, uh, be glorified in me, be glorified. Da, 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 da. Like, I don't remember the rest of it, but it was along those lines. It was like, yeah, now that's what happens when you do recite a bracha. That's what Baruch Atah Adonai, like that's what that whole phrase is about. So anyway, uh, yeah, you don't want to do that. So it says, is Hashem with us or not? And then it says, because of these matters, Amalek attacked them. So we were attacked by Amalek during the counting of the Omer. So if you're having these wanes and your uh, your your, uh, your faith, your your walk is feeling attacked. If you feel unmotivated, unenthused about being observant or sticking to it uh, in your studies and continuing to grow and things like that, well, guess what? This is a Melek season, and it's heavy season. It's like heavy whipping cream of a Melek just poured out upon you right now. So. You know, time to suit up and fight back. This is why I don't play no games. I am Shomer Man and Bezra Hashem, you know, like I keep my suit, you know, on. Keep it at arm's length at all times. And it's just like you may think it's a joke. You may think it's a game. Shomer Man, what are you talking about? No, this is real. It's serious. And we better understand that because until the final redemption, we're going to have to fight. There's a reason why we still have swords and not plowshares. There will come a time where we'll beat our swords into plowshares, but right now is not that time. And that's what happened to me the, the week going into Pesach. I was thinking, oh, we're, psh, man, we're practically there, you know? And it's just like, no, we're not. We, we got a lot of work to do. Uh, the world is continuing to increase in craziness. You think it's time to kick your feet up and uh, relax? No, it's not. And by the way, it could get a whole lot worse. So you better buckle up for safety. And I'm like, oh, gosh, flip my visor back down, you know, build more suits, you know. So everybody, come on, let's let's do this. Avengers don't play around like it. it is not over. Mashiach is not here. I mean, maybe a Mashiach is here. I don't know. But Mashiach is not here yet. Let's just put it that way. think there'd be a lot more earthquaking, resurrection, temple coming out of the sky, stuff going on. Twinkling of an eye changes kind of stuff. But anyway, redemption is a process, right? So unfold, 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 unfold. Like you unroll a Torah scroll. Okay, I kind of like that line. Unfold, unfold, unfold. Unroll like a Torah scroll. What? Okay, anyway. So Amalek attacks, and it says, They were in Alima, and they began to cry and complain that they don't have water to drink. And then it says, In the Yom Suf. So, okay, this is about to get so bad. So, you know, Hashem is parting the sea. Right. I would think Hashem parting the sea. I'm walking on water. Here we go. Like this is ridiculous. But now we understand why Kepha, Peter, was able to walk on water and then have a freak out moment. Because why? Here it is. 
they also had their share of sins. So even in the sea, we were sinners. Are you serious? Even when Kepha was walking to Yeshua, he doubted. What is the deal, man? Like, we have a lot to go against. But Brukashim. Side note, there was uh, one story brought down here about a particular uh, rabbi who had a uh, one of one of the hairs of his beard fell out and he was worried about transgressing a, a Yom Tov because like cutting your hair and all this kind of trimming stuff on Yom Tovs are not per- permissible, like they're prohibited. And so he was just like, oh, no, I've transgressed the, the, the Yom Tov or whatever. And it was like this whole defeating thing. And the Yatsahara came, attacked him. And he was all like, you know what, Yatsahara, hang yourself on that hair. I'm going to serve Hashem because guess what? I'm made new right now. You know what? I'm going to swerve off and I'm going to do that. Hang on. We got to read this. This is so important because this is the kind of mentality we need to have. Okay. Where is it? Okay. So here we go. This is Torah Wellsprings again. With great fear of Hashem and with fiery ambition to bring atonement and salvation to his community and to all Kalal Yisrael, the Sar Shalom of Bells, Z-Y-A, which, uh, let's get that real quick. Yeah, I know, we just, we just said Sar Shalom, oh my goodness. Stand by because I know we got ZTL, which is Zikron Zadik Livraka. May the memory of the righteous be for a blessing. But I don't think I've ever said what ZYA is. Really? Is this happening right now? Uh, wow. Searching for ZYA and I cannot find anything. Stand by. Okay. That was quite the doozy. But Baruch Atah Adonai, Lohena Manakal Lam, Shomea Tefila. <sighs> Bless you, Adonai, our God, for you are the one who hears prayer because I was freaking out. I was like, how come no one knows what ZYA means? ZY uh, quotation A. So it means Zekuto Yagen Alenu. So if you see ZYA, Zekuto, his merit, Yagen Alenu, shield us. From the word my gain. So, Zakuto Yagain Alenu. Okay, so let's restart over here. ZYA is may the may his merit shield us. Okay, so with great fear of Hashem and with fiery ambition to bring atonement and salvation to his community and to all Kalal Yisrael, 
the Sar Shalom of Bells, Z-Y-A, Zekuto Yaganalenu, may his merit shield us, a, or Slika, placed the shofar on his lips to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so the, the Yom Tov that I was talking about is Rosh Hashanah. So he's like, I'm about to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. I'm about to bring atonement. About to bring it down. Which, if you know about it, uh, intention in, in Yiddishkeit and in, in anything you do in Judaism, your intention, like, boosts and, and amplifies anything that you're doing. So if he already had the intent to atone and bring wow to bring salvation through the shofar i mean this is ridiculous so it says but when he saw that he accidentally tore off one of the hairs of his mustache this startled him he felt that he had somewhat transgressed the yom tov at this prime moment and thereby lost the opportunity to bring atonement for himself, for his entire community, and for Klal Yisrael. That's pretty intense. Okay, so he felt he lost the moment. He says he was on the verge of becoming depressed about it. But then the Sar Shalom realized that these were the thoughts of the Yetzir Hara. So to himself, he said, or so to himself, he said to the Azahara, strangle yourself with the hair. I am now a new person. And then with joy and exalted pride, he blew the shofar for his community. Like, I don't know what to even take away from that. Just amazing the audacity to be like, you know what, Yezahara, you don't you don't get to tell me I'm I'm a failure. You don't get to tell me I'm done. I can't do this. No, I'm I'm new right now. So Rabbi Trugman speaks a lot about this concept called Hidkatshut, which is reminiscent of David Hamelik, King David's life. That every moment of King David's life, he considered to be a new moment. He considered to be new, like he never has been there before. So every time he did Shakarit, he's like, oh, this is Shakarit. What is this? I've never done this before. Because in truth, he's never done that Shakarit before. He's done previous ones, but not this one. So may we all have the same mentality to know that the moment we fail, from that point, we decide to change and get up. We can also make that same declaration. What are you talking about, Yetzahara? I'm a new person. And proceed to tell him that previous moment of death and entrapment, that's his death and entrapment. So it's like the hair was an issue. It's like, okay, fine. That'll be your rope to hang yourself with, Yetzahara. Have fun. I'm going to blow the show for now. Anyway, so that's the kind of uh, fortitude we got to have. It says, they weren't perfect all the 50 days of preparation for Matan Torah. But we must realize that preparing for Matan Torah is a process. There are ups and downs. But the main thing is to continue believing that Hashem desires 
our service and then from each descent, we can rise to an even greater level when we get up again. And this beautiful drop from Reb Gadal Elsner would relate a story about a drummer who continued drumming even after someone got angry at him and slapped him in the face. The drummer said, I got a beating and I continued drumming happily because this is an important principle of life that one must acquire even when he falls from his level. He should continue onwards with Avodat Hashem. Just get back up and keep on going. So, with that being said, got our Jubilees, got our Yovel moving through time so far. It's not linear to elevate. So, let's open up Master Plan finally. That's the preface. So we're going to speed through this because I'm only going to read the highlights of what I have on this page. Drop down because, okay, every chapter of Master Plan opens with the verses that give the halakha or that give the basis for the halakha that we take forth. So we have Shemot 12.2, which is the Rosh Hodesh, the looking at the moon, and then we have Devarim 16.1, observing uh, Pesach in the spring. And then we have Shemot 34, 22, um, the Feast of Weeks, you know, Shavuot, the Feast of End Gathering, uh, and all that. Side note, Shavuot is also called the First Fruits. So if you did not hear last episodes of my podcasting where I talked about, we discovered Yeshua wasn't resurrected on First Fruits. First Fruits is Shavuot. But when you bring the Omer, that's called the Rashit of the harvest, the first of the harvest. So Yeshua was actually r- resurrected on the first of the harvest, but not the first fruits. So big difference between those two. The differences between Rashit, which is the first of the harvest, and Bikor, which is the first, like as in firstborn, because it's Bikurim is the the word for first fruits. So Rashid versus Bakor. So that's a study that's beyond the scope of what I want to talk about tonight. But just as a side note. All right, here we go. So page 224 says the calendar of the Torah is basically a lunar one. So hop over to Horeb by Rabbi Hirsch. Page 256. What does it say on page 256? I don't know. We about to find out though. How do I not have this tab? Boy, Shomer man. We gonna fight like chickens and roaches. Don't have this tab. Oh, paragraph 256. Goodness. Okay, so again, if you're in Horeb, there are little numbers that are out to the margins of each section, and those are called paragraphs. So you'll see para as the uh, P-A-R-A as the abbreviation. So it'll say para 256, para 307, you know, and all that. There's actual page numbers at the bottom. So paragraph 
256 corresponds to page 161. And I do have it tabbed. So Baruch Hashem says the course of the moon and of the sun are both taken into consideration in the Jewish calendar. The former gives us the months. So the moon. This is why we have two new years, which is, by the way, on page 225 of Master Plan. It says we have two new years. Get you some. Because the moon tells us about the months and then the sun uh, tells us about the year. It says because our festivals by their character are linked up respectively with the seasons. See Para 164. Says the month, however, does not consist of a number of complete days, nor does the solar year consist of a number of complete lunar months. Because these three systems of time are not integral ancillaries of one, one whole, which renders night and day as perfect sections of a month and the months of perfect sections of a year. On the contrary, they are quite separate, although coexistent. And they each represent their own facets of the systems governing life on the terrestrial globe. Systems which by their interaction give play before our very eyes and partly within our own selves to continually changing life, which is, to use a mathematical term, one of the known quantities in life. Therefore, we have had to arrive at our own system so that we might have in our life months of a complete number of days and solar years of a complete number of months and yet remain on the whole true to the course of the stars. So we're calculating sun, moon, and stars on the Hebrew calendar. It says the months vary in the calculation of the number of their days. One month has 29, another has 30. And so the complete day, which is lost every two months, which is 12 hours in each month, is compensated for. And it's also important to know any month with 30 days means you have a double Rosh Hodesh, which we actually have during the Omer count. Every single year, there's always two Rosh Hodeshim for Nisan and Iyar. So the 30th day of Nisan and the first day of Iyar, those are both Rosh Hodesh. So if you have Shabbat, then you'll have your Rosh Hodesh liturgy as well as your Shabbat liturgy on that Rosh Hodesh, if the double Rosh Hodesh ends up falling on it. So, when is Rosh Hodesh? Uh, look at the calendar. All right, we got the 33rd day of the Omer on April the 30th. Wow. Okay. That's crazy. Okay, so Rosh Hodesh is not this week, but next week. Which means this Shabbat coming up is Shabbat Mevachim. Come on. Okay. Um, so Rosh Hodesh is officially Monday, April 12th. And Tuesday, April 13th. 
So we got Double Rochel Desh, Yom Shaney, and Yom Shlishi. Wow. Get you some. Two days back to back of Rochel Desh. All right. So all that to say, back to Master Plan, page 224. It says. Be aware of the waxing and the waning of the moon, which mirror the ups and downs of Israel. And I put like the Mishkan during the seven days of, uh, we had uh, Parsha, Vayikra, Zav, and now Shmini. Shmini is taking place on the eighth day of that whole cycle, which began in the last week of Adar and brought us to the first day of Nisan, which is the Rosh Hodesh of all Rosh Hodeshim, because this is the beginning of the year. So this is the new year. So Parsha Shmini is about the eighth day where the Mishkan was finally set up and left up, was no longer taken down. This was the new year. And then this was also um, Rosh Hodesh. And yeah a very big day first day of using the Mishkan the first day of saying hey Hashem that thing we did back in Tammuz of last year um it's rectified you said are forgiven look at that process so we we made the golden calf 17th of Tammuz of the previous year then we have we go through Yom Kippur we get the new set of tablets and then after we get the new set of tablets, we start taking donations, Parsha Taruma. We get the donations in and everybody has to be told to stop doing that. And that was taking us into the 15th of Tishrei, which is the first day of Sukkot. Then we began building and fashioning the Mishkan. And it took from Sukkot all the way to Hanukkah to complete it. By the time Hanukkah got there, we were done, but it was like, nope, we're going to wait till Nissan to set this thing up and start using it. So, and then that there's a Midrash that says that was in honor of Isaac. So the reason we left it was to represent the Mishkan would be set up during the same time frame that Yitzhak would have been born. So, yeah, the raising up of the Mishkan is likened to the raising up of the Akeda. Okay. So, anyway, so, yeah, that, that process. So, that's almost a full year minus a couple of months. So, Nissan to Tammuz, you know, because Tammuz is the fourth month. And it's just kind of like, all right, you know, kind of thing. So, wow. Okay. I don't know. I mean, it's just basically eight months of, you know, let's rebuild. Let's figure this out. If it took that long for the Mishkan, you know, I'm just thinking about Magi and Yashinu, how much rebuilding we're doing, you know, and figuring things out in our own lives and transitions that have happened. And it's just like, okay, so give, give yourself time. Things in life take time. So anyway, um, moving on, it says 
the ups and downs of Israel's spiritual life and its constant power of self-renewal. The calendar teaches us how to renew ourselves. So the way we're going through time is like a shofar. And we had the whole drop from Torah Wellsprings about the moment of being made new. So the shofar, rebirth, renewal, time, freedom from slavery and bondage, it's all related. Then it goes on to say, next paragraph, festivals shall be attuned to the rhythms of the solar year. Pesach must always fall in the spring. Sukkot always fall in the fall. Doesn't ever change. Enter in the Eben Ezra. On the translator's uh, foreword. Okay, so this is the Eben Ezra, Ezra on uh, Yeshiyahu Isaiah, translator's foreword. So it says, learned men far and near sought his instruction, were desirous of ascertaining his opinion upon the most varied subjects. Thus, Rabbi Yosef of Narbonne requested him to explain three problems touching the Jewish calendar. One of the questions was the following. Why is there in the year 1139 an interval of nearly four weeks between Jewish and Christian Passover. According to the Jewish law, Passover is to be celebrated in the spring. And he gives a bunch of sources for that. And it says, after the full moon of the 15th of Nisan, the same festival is kept by the Christians on the Sunday after the first full moon in the spring, i.e. after the 21st of March. The difference between the lunar year of the Hebrew calendar and the solar year is balanced by seven additional months and 19 years at intervals of two or three years, so that the difference at the utmost would be about three weeks. If the Christian Smeester fell four weeks later than the Jewish Pesach, that is, after the full moon of Iyar, then Pesach could not be in the spring as the law requires. In the year named, it happened, however, to be so, and Evan Ezra was asked for an explanation, which he accordingly gave. Wow, shouts out to Evan Ezra. Like, this, something that could never happen actually happened, so what do you say? And he's like, okay, I'll tell you what I say. What, what did he say? What did he say? He said. Namely, that the year of the Christian calendar consisted of 365.25 days. So 365 and a fourth days, while the Jewish calendar computed it more accurately 365 days. In the year 1138, the difference between the 21st of March and the beginning of the spring. Uh, and it says, according to the Jewish calendar, um, amounted to about seven days. According to Jewish computation, the full moon of Nisan was in the spring, while the Christians had to wait for the full moon of Er. Which, what happens after the full or on the full moon of ER, Pesach Shani, the second Pesach. 
for those who couldn't make the first one. Anyway, digress. So, according to the computation, the full moon of Nissan was in the spring while the Christians had to wait for the full moon of the month of ER. We hear of his friendly intercourse with the poet Rabbi Moshe ben Ezra, whom some authorities and Omer Hashicha uh, describe as a relative of our Ibn Ezra from a poetic poetical enigma in which he described a dinner with its varied pleasures which they once enjoyed together it says to Rabbi Yehuda Halevi he was no stranger according to Yakasin, i.e. was the cousin their mothers being okay giving a whole lot of backstory in the commentaries of Evan Ezra, many traces of the literous, literary conversations of these two friends are met with. He always evinces some pleasure in reproducing the opinions and words of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. So go down a little bit. Make sure we get to the good stuff. Whole lot of backstory over here. Okay, well, that would be the main point of that one because they go into talking about other stuff. So, in the year 1138, which affected 1139, there was the... Wow, that's so crazy. So 1138, got to catch it here with my eye. Okay. The difference between the 21st of March and the beginning of the spring, according to the Jewish calendar, amounted to about seven days. So according to Jewish computation, the full moon of Nisan was in the spring while the Christians had to wait for the full moon of ER. So the seven day discrepancy of the full moon of ER for the Christians uh, resulted in a giant uh, window or a giant uh, gap between Pesach and Smeester of the following year. So there's a lot that talks about you know, Christianity wanted to make sure that they did things. So it was uh, specifically not connected close to Pesach because it was just like, we don't want that. We don't want to be associated with that. But then on the other hand, it's like, but this is what you're doing during Pesach time. So like you want to have your, your Yom Tov, your holiday, if we can call it that, I don't know, because it's all about stuff that's not kosher but anyway even the name is a, a a deity of some sort and so mentioning that name is actually calling upon that deity yikes but uh yeah so if you'll notice this year the seventh day of pesach was the day after good friday and then between good friday and resurrection sunday so everything was like overlapped and on top of each other. 
So much so to the point it was really awkward when I was off work on Friday to get ready for the seventh day of Pesach and the meal of Mashiach. And it was just like, you're Jewish. Why are you off on Good Friday? And it's like, I'm getting ready for Shabbat on top of the last day of Pesach. It's like nobody knew what I was saying. Anyway. So that just goes to say that there is supposed to be a lot of corollary between Pesach and Shmeister. And it's just completely different. But this is the thing. If you want to if you want to know, like the heart of Hashem here is that are you going to choose this or are you going to choose that? I said before you life and death. And it's like so simple. It's just like you can you can literally go either way at this point. So which one do you choose? Which was so crazy because at least on the 5781 calendar that we're on, when it was the 10th of Tibet, it corresponded to the Gregorian calendar of December the 25th. So it's like, are you fasting or are you eating the Xmas ham and opening presents? You know, and it's just kind of like, ooh, that's a choice. <laughs> anyway, so going on, it says the solar year is almost 11 days longer than the lunar year. The 12 months. This is the second paragraph. So let me just read the full sentence. Since the solar year is almost 11 days longer than the 12 lunar months, some adjustment must be made to keep the two calendars in step. This is achieved by inserting an extra month, which is Adar 1. Adar 1, not Adar 2. Adar 2 is the normal Adar. Adar 1 is the extra. So the extra comes before. So much so to the point that, oh, I did not take a picture of it. Man, Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 2, was talking about the potential for your younger child to have his bar mitzvah before the older child, if they were born in the month of Adar. <sighs> Wish I took a picture of it. I really think I took a picture of it, but I could be wrong. Pictures, where you at? Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I took a picture of it. I'm just going to. And the, the crazy part is, is I was like, yeah, bring your book in here with you. You're going to need your book. And I'm like, no, I won't. Now I'm like, yeah, I will. But anyway, there's a beautiful drop in volume two about children who were born in the month of Adar one versus children who were born in the normal month of Adar. Because it changes up their 13th year because everything is on a 19 year cycle. So you may or may not have your bar mitzvah on a leap year, depending on when you were born and what cycle of the months you're in. Because that's how crazy, amazing the Hebrew calendar is that your bar mitzvah could be before your older brother if you were born in a leap year. It's crazy. Like you get 
oh my gosh, it's so weird to think about. Okay, but anyway, first day of Pesach never falls before the venerable equinox and the first day of Sukkot never before the autumn, uh, autumnal equinox. So there's that because there's a whole lot of the equinox that goes on. Like, how can we put everything around those? So Hebrew calendar, we have everything already preset. Uh, it is remarkable that this calendar, which was planned and put into operation in the fourth century, has been operating for over 1600 years without needing adjustments. So there is that. Uh, the two new years, it says we celebrate the new year in the fall on the first of Tishrei. This is when the year changes, like, for instance, 5751 to 5752 and so on. However, the Torah tells us to count our months, the Chodesh, from Nisan, the month of our liberation from Mitzrayim, in from Slika, in the spring. Okay, so our liberation was in the spring. God is telling us that the exodus from Mitzrayim marked a new epoch. In Nisan, the world is full of promise. And it goes in the plants are putting forth their first shoots, birds are building nests, the vigor of spring is in our veins. It says it was in this month that the people of Israel marched into history, bearing the promise of the world's salvation. By counting the months from Nisan to the Torah, um, by counting the months of Nisan, the Torah reminds us continually of this optimistic beginning. So salvation, help, redemption, all of that. If Nisan is the month of promise, Tishri is the month of judgment. This is the turn of the agricultural year. The harvest is already in. We can judge its quality. So when Mashiach Yeshua tells us the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Like there's this whole thing, bring in the harvest before Tishri, you know. Go from Nisan to Tishri and just like glean, bring in as much as you can. Which is so crazy because this is the this is the pilgrimage festivals. It's like Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. And it's like the whole in gathering thing. So anyway, it says uh, the harvest is already in. You can judge its quality. It is also the time for judging our spiritual harvest. And I wrote out in the margins, Matthew 9, 7, verse 37, Matthew 20, John 4, verse 35, Baha Torah, Shemot 6, 6, page 574. Um, this is one of my favorite parts. This is really what I wanted to say on tonight's podcast for sure. Concern for the housewife. Besides the main goal of ensuring the incidents of Pesach in the spring, the calendar also has other constraints. One of these is to ensure that Yom Kippur should never fall immediately before or after Shabbat. 
on neither of these days is it permitted to prepare food, and the rabbis considered it too onerous on the housewife to have to go 48 hours without being able to prepare fresh food for the family. So this is the other thing. People think that they can cite the new moon and be like, ah, I saw the new moon last night. I blew the shofar. And it's just like, are you really going to be able to make sure Yom Kippur doesn't happen on a prep day or Yom Rishon? Because that won't be right. Because you're, you're going to cause people to have 48 hours without being able to prepare fresh food. Which, if you think about that, no longer than three days. So on the third day, we will be able to prepare food. Those rabbis, boy, I tell you what. Two days, Yom Tov. It says before the fourth century CE, the beginning of each new month known as Rosh Hodesh and thus the festivals and before the 4th century uh, they were fixed on the basis of eyewitness this provided an opportunity for the people of Israel to participate personally in fixing the time of their rendezvous with the Almighty though God had fixed the date and the month i.e. the 15th day of Tishrei for the start of Sukkot it was Israel who fixed the day so Shem's like Whatever you want to do, make sure your day is, makes room for my date. Like the calendar is so powerful that there's a date already set. And the only thing is missing is like what day it's going to be on. So the 15th of Nissan is going to happen. But depending on when Rosh Hodesh falls out, that will change up the day on which it happens. Which means when people, again, move around the day of different events with the 15th of Nissan is on a Yom Rishon and you moved it to like a Yom Shlishi. It's like at that point, it's not even the 15th of Nissan anymore, even though you say it is because you've changed the day and you've also missed the date. That's like a double whammy. Anyway, um, goes on to say this was not done until the evidence of the eyewitnesses had been accepted by the Sanhedrin. Cool thing about these eyewitnesses, they can go out and cite the new moon all they want and shout, we saw it, we saw it. But if the Sanhedrin doesn't accept it, guess what? It's not new. Which means people out here making calculations now and being on the lunar crazy calendar uh, apart from the one that's already set and been established since the fourth century, it's like you're in some very, very crazy waters because if you're going to be an eyewitness, you have to have a Sanhedrin that can testify and affirm or confirm that you actually saw the new moon. Okay, so it says Jews who lived in the diaspora far from Eretz Israel, not knowing the precise day of Rosh Hodesh, had to observe two days of Yom Tov to be on the safe side. Notice it says they had to observe like this was a mandate from the Sanhedrin. Yeah, if you're outside of Israel, you don't know when Rosh Hodesh was. Yeah, diaspora day for you. 
And it said to commemorate this, the diaspora Jews to this day keep two days Yom Tov. So there's that. Um, just because it's the last paragraph, it says Rosh Hodesh and the natural environment. For the Torah Jew, however, this is not so. Let's go back. For the city dweller and the waxing and the waning of the moon seems largely irrelevant. Yep. If you live in a city, it's just like, ah, whatever. Luminar is doing stuff. But for the Torah Jew, this is not true. It says the Torah directs our attention to the moment when the moon, when the new moon reappears and declares that day a semi-holiday known as Rosh Hodesh, in which partial Hallel is said and special praises sung to the Almighty. The Torah wishes us to be attuned to the rhythms of our natural environment. The renewal of the moon has significance for our spiritual development. It reminds us that even after one is sunk to the very border of oblivion, regeneration is still possible. Did you know that there's a lose bone that's at the top of your spinal column and the base of your skull from that bone, your whole body will be regenerated from for the resurrection. And so the whole point about the, the Rosh Hodesh is like, you could barely see the moon. You know, it's like, if you looked at pictures of the moon, when it was actually Rosh Hodesh, you'd be like, I don't see anything. Same thing with our spiritual lives. Sometimes it's like, man, I just don't see anything. I don't see any reason why I could be Jewish. I don't see any reason why Hashem loves me. I don't see any reason why I should still be observant. It's like, yeah, you can regenerate even from that point. Yeshua says, if you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to cast itself into the sea. That's the thing. We don't need much. We can regenerate from just a little bit. To which always blows my mind to think of how much we actually do versus how much we're actually, you know, needing regeneration from. You know, you think about <clears throat> all the things you are doing and then it's like, well, I'm not doing this, but I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Right. But what are you also not not doing? You know, like you ever thought about what you're not not doing? You know, like I'm not bowing down to idols. I'm not, you know, keeping other holidays. You know, I'm not uh, forsaking Torah, you know, as far as, you know, um, I don't know. I'm not out there killing people and things like that. You ever thought about those things? Because sometimes we get so caught up and it's just like, don't forget. You're davening. Don't forget you're, you're studying the Torah. Don't forget you're giving Zedakah. Don't forget you're you're encouraging and you're building your community. Don't forget Hashem is first and foremost in your life. He is the main focus of the he is the wow, he's the main focus. He is the main focus of the first moments of your soul returning back to your body in the morning when you wake up. The molde ani, right? Like think about that. Compared to what you're not currently doing and what you're working towards improving to, which, by the way, Sephirata Omer, that's the name of the game. Sephirata Omer should be hashtag what kind of improvements can I make to myself? 
So I don't know. I think it's just amazing if we really think about that because that's what Rosh Hodesh teaches us. That's what the calendar teaches us. Like you can be new at every moment, every time, every season, every hour, every year, you know? So it says that subconscious feeling of optimism. A new month is starting. A new beginning can be made is extremely valuable in the eyes of Torah. And for this whole paragraph, I just wrote excellent. But here it is. In many cities in Israel, soon after the beginning of the Jewish month, one may see little knots of people in the forecourt of a synagogue or in the street dancing sedately in a tight circle and singing praises to God for the gift of the new moon. They were concluding the service of Birkat Halevana, which is um, the blessing of the new moon, sanctification of the new moon. Trying to think of what the other word is. Oh, Kiddush Levana. There you go. It's also called Birkat Levana, the blessing over the new moon, which, by the way, you have to wait at least 72 hours into the month before you can recite this. And it is preferable to recite it at a Motsi Shabbos. So with your Havdalah or just after your Havdalah. With that being said, we're counting the Omer right now. You want to count the Omer if you can with your Kiddush, Kiddush for Erev. So in the middle of you saying your Brachot over your cup, Take a moment to count the Omer with your cup so that that way uh, you have special Shabbatot during the Omer that are elevated uh, during this Omer count. And when you're counting the Omer, you want to count the Omer um, either before or after Havdalah. There is a custom to do it before so that you actually end up counting two Omers during the Shabbat and you have this double elevation going on because when does Havdalah happen when three stars in the sky at nightfall and so you can count the Omer once it's nightfall literally it's the first thing you want to try to do Uh, it goes on to say this is how Jews keep themselves aware of the beauty that is found in the natural environment Okay, Seasons of the Soul by Rabbi Trugman, page one. A couple of drops. Obviously, this is coming from the preface. The basic spiritual principle that guides all understanding of the Torah is that each story, mitzvah, moral instruction, and holiday contains eternal lessons relevant to each individual in every generation. You ever think about that? Each story, mitzvah, moral instruction, and holiday contains eternal lessons relevant to each individual in every generation. Okay. In other words, the stories of the Torah are not merely one-time narratives that happened to people long ago, but rather... The situations, tests, challenges, mistakes, and triumphs of 
biblical characters represent archetypal models of reality that manifest themselves continually at all levels of existence. Furthermore, this eternal and multidimensional quality is true not only of Torah stories, but of the mitzvot and holidays as well, each one opening up a different channel of deeper connection to God, to the world we live in, to other souls, and ultimately to our deepest selves. Torah's archetypal energies resonate on a multitude of planes, ranging from spiritual to political, from physical to practical or psychological to practical, while also reverberating simultaneously on the personal, communal, national, and global levels. So this very multidimensional, like a multiverse, that's the Torah. Says from this perspective, the yearly cycle of Jewish holidays provides an experiential template for us to enter into and animate in order to gain deeper insight into the ultimate meaning and purpose of the Jewish people. So now the holidays give us insight into the meaning and the purpose of the Jewish people, as well as into each other's personal soul persons or each person's soul journey in the world the dynamic interplay of of the holidays and the turning of the seasons along with their agricultural significance yields profound truths on multiple levels of being especially the psycho spiritual cycle of human consciousness So the interplay of the holidays and the turning of the seasons have profound truths on multiple levels, especially on the psycho-spiritual cycles of human consciousness, which is intrinsically connected to the divine rhythms of time as they manifest in nature. Going all the way back here to... The most amazing thing I've ever read in this book. Page 443. According to Jewish tradition, another relevant event occurred right before the 10th of Tibet, the birth of Jesus on the 9th of Tibet. Both the translation of the Torah into Greek and the birth of Christianity were attempts to universalize Judaism. Although both attempts missed the mark, which is the word for sin, sin is to miss the mark. So translation of the Torah into Greek and the birth of Christianity are considered to be a sin. Wow. When it comes to attempting to universalize Judaism. Uh, so they missed the mark as far as Jewish tradition is concerned. It is important to note the common desire to bring Torah in some manner to the entire world during this specific time of the year. So the death of Kepha of Peter is also commemorated during the 10th of Tibet because on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of Tibet, there were a lot of tragedies as well. And Kepha was said to have been martyred on one of those three days so everything that we do now on the 10th of tibet commemorates actually events that have transpired over the millennia on the 8th and 9th of tibet as well 
going on over here to page 442 says after an eight day fast he being adam that is noticed that the darkness was beginning to recede a little bit each day slowly but surely revealing more and more light he thus celebrated this increasing illumination for eight days as each day grew lighter and lighter the following year he commemorated this experience by celebrating for 16 days eight days for his spiritual or for his initial period of fasting eight days for the return of the light which by the way the lighter and lighter and lighter that corresponds to the week of hanukkah which we're adding light each night since these events coincide with the yearly winter solstice later generations and cultures mis misappropriated these festivals that adam had originally established with good intentions and turned these days into pagan holidays of idol worship avodozera 8a Sleek, I'm going to put my little tab in place. Because we're talking about Parsha Shmini, which is a cycle of seven going into eight. From Jewish Wisdom and the Numbers, says the motif of seven in the attainment of holiness is likewise present within the personal passages of a man's life. The development of life is said to unfold in seven distinct phases. There is an imperative that the Jew directs everything towards holy endeavors. Where this is not the case, everything in the natural world is labeled as hevel, vanity or futile. A word King Shlomo uses seven times in close succession. Matrimony is the key to holiness. Indeed, the term kiddushin, which is marriage, relates to the word kiddusha, which is sanctity. There is the widespread custom for the bride to encircle the groom, seven circuits, under the hoopah, the wedding canopy, the sheva brachot, the seven blessings recited under the wedding canopy, with the wedding celebrations for a maiden who has never been wed, lasting seven days. Here, both the husband and the wife assume their marital responsibility, which again is comprised of seven primary matters. The week-long mourning period of Shiva, which is a seven-day term, as the initial bereavement period upon the passing of an immediate family member, is the counterpart of the week-long celebration of the Shiva Brakot in marriage. The mourner traditionally recites Kaddish, prayer to sanctify the name of God a minimum of seven times daily where the key phrase is a seven word formula response by the congregation uh, yeah the one that is the phrase for tearing up evil decrees seven words this is why yeshua said forgive seven times seven you know 70 times seven it's all in the sevens then it goes on to say after the national mourning for the destruction of the temple 
on Tishbaav, the subsequent seven weeks are termed Sheva de Nechomoto, seven weeks of consolation. The successive Shabbats, Haftarah readings, are words of solace. see here yeah the successive shabbat haftarah shabbat haftarah readings are words of solace taken from the seven prophecies of isaiah this is an integral part of the rejuvenation process after death and destruction page 115 seven days of the week culminate in shabbat as creation proudly proclaims mastery of the creator Holiness of the Shabbat and the Jewish festivals is particularly evident in the formation of the Amidah with seven blessings. Normally, during the week, we have 18 blessings, but during the Shabbat and the festivals, we do seven. The Jewish calendar counts years like days and cycles. It follows the pattern of a week. So we have six mundane units followed by one unit of holiness. So a six to one ratio. The Shemitah, which is the seventh year, is itself defined as a Shabbat of rest for the land, a Shabbat to Hashem. Like the inactivity of physical, creative acts on the Shabbat, during the Shemitah year, agricultural labor was forbidden with the land lying uncultivated. The seventh year, like the seventh day, is endowed with a special sanctity. Okay, so we get our seven in place, and then we get to jump to eight. Page 125 says, Like Milah, which is the circumcision, the Torah itself is termed a breet. Torah is a breach. This is why the covenant is found in Mashiach as well. It says referring to other worldly covenant as forged between God and Israel. Torah is the exclusive possession of the Jewish people. It is only those circumcised on the eighth day who can relate to the supernal supernatural Torah of eight to shape their lives. It is the Torah in turn which permits the Jew to transcend the limitations of the natural world. Uh, yep, so through our eight, we transcend natural limitation. says eight alludes to transcendence not only of the laws of the physical world but also of our limitations and errors it refers to freedom from defilement following the cleansing through penitence when a jew fall, falls he picks himself up the righteous may fall seven times he will arise it is upon the eighth occasion that he starts a new phase the spiritual purification process for the ritually impure often requires a seven-day count. Through repentance, they can remove defilements of sin and inaugurate a new phase of purity. Like our rabbi who 
did so with the sounding of the shofar. He was battling with the Yetzahara about the hair that was plucked out of his mustache when he was trying to blow the shofar, and he's just like, oh, no. And it's just like, well, repentance can remove the defilement of sin and inaugurate a new phase of purity. He's like, oh, well, I repent says the very name of King Mashiach refers to the anointing of the Davidic dynasty with oil. Okay. And let's bring it over here. Bring up the fact of the principle of intercalculation from Pierre K. de Rebbe Eliezer, Chapter 8 says, On the 28th of Elul, the sun and the moon were created. The number of years, months, days, nights, terms, seasons, cycles, and intercalculation were before the Holy One. It's just like, okay, so everything's just sitting in front of Hashem. It's just like, all right, so you, um, days, come here. Uh, nights, I need to talk to you. Terms, you need to come over here. Months, hey, let me talk to you. Number of years. Hey, let me, what's up? Uh, cycles. Hello, cycles. Yes. Six and sevens and sevens and eights. All of these things are like, wow, it's crazy. They're all before Shem. And it says that, um, that's crazy. It says he intercalculated the years and afterwards delivered the calculations to the first man, Adam and Ghani Din. As it is said, this is the calculation for the generations of Adam, Bereshit 5 1. The calculation of the world therein for the generations of the children of Adam. Go down a little bit. It says, Noach handed on the tradition to Shem. He was initiated in the principle of intercalculation he intercalculated the years and he was called a priest who inter he was called a priest as it is said and Melchizedek king of Shalem was a priest of God most high Bereshit 14 18 was Shem the son of Noach a priest so what does that say about Noach if Shem was a priest anyway so much for Noahides, but it says, but because he was the firstborn and because he ministered to his God by day and by night, therefore he was called a priest. Shem delivered the tradition to Abraham. He was initiated in the principle of intercalculation and he intercalculated the year. And he also was called a priest. As it is said, the Lord had sworn and will not repent Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Telling one ten four. <laughs> so that was said of Abraham. Wow. Hence, when do we know that Shem delivered the tradition of Abraham? Because it is said in the, after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham delivered the tradition of Yitak, Isaac, and he was initiated in the principle of intercalculation. And... 
he intercalated the year after the death of our father Abraham, as it is said, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed Yitzhak, his son. Genesis 25, 11. Because he had been initiated in the principle of intercalculation, had had intercalculated the year, therefore he blessed him with the blessing of eternity. So eternity was given to the Akira, Yitzhak. Okay. Yitzhak gave to Yaakov all the blessings and delivered to him the principle of intercalculation. When Yaakov went out of the Holy Land, he attempted to intercalculate the year outside the Holy Land. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, Yaakov, you have no authority to intercalculate the year outside the land of Yisrael. Behold, Yitzhak, your father, is in the Holy Land. He will intercalculate the year, as it is said, and God appeared unto Yaakov again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. Genesis 35, 9. Why again? Because the first time he was revealed, he prevented him from intercalculating the year outside of the Holy Land. But when he came to the Holy Land, the Holy One blessed be, he said to him, Yaakov, arise, intercalculate the year. As it is said, and God appeared unto Yaakov again and blessed him. Because he was initiated in the principle of intercalculation, he was blessed with the blessing of the world. Thus were the Israelites want to intercalculate the year of the holy. Intercalculate the year. It's like I lost my place. Uh, Thus were the Israelites want to intercalculate the year of the Holy Land when they were exiled to Babylon. They intercalculated the year through whose or through those who were left in the Holy Land when they were all exiled and there were not any Jews left in the Holy Land. They intercalculated the year in Babylon when Ezra and all the community with him went to the Holy Land. Ezekiel wished to intercalculate the year in Babylon. Then the Holy One blessed be he said to him, Ezekiel. You have no authority to intercalculate the year outside the land. So again, just for the people who go out and blow shofars and cite the new moon and say this is the new month, there's no authority outside the land of Israel to be doing that. Um, it says, whoop, uh, going on. Behold, Israel, your brethren, they will intercalculate the year, as it is said, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwell in their own land, Ezekiel thirty six seventeen. Hence the sages have said, Even when the righteous and the wise are outside the land, and the keeper of the sheep and herds are in the land, they do not intercalculate the year except through the keeper of the sheep and herds in the land. Even when the prophets are outside the land and the ignorant are in the land, they do not intercalculate the year except through the ignorant who are in the land. As it is said, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwell in their 
dwell in their own land, it is their duty to intercalculate the year. So just a little side note, the way that we were given the ability of how to do the calendar was through what was handed down from Adam all the way down to Ezra and the men of the great of assembly and so on and so forth. And it's our duty when we are in the land of Israel to calculate the year by the sun, the moon and the stars. So that was Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer. Bring it on over here to Paradox of Eight by Menachem Feldman. The number eight seems to contain two conflicting elements. On one hand, the number eight is in a class of its own, separate from the cycle of nature. Yet on the other hand, the number eight is a direct ex or continuation of the number seven. And why is six scared of seven? Because seven, eight, nine. Okay. Anyway, uh, it says this seeming paradox explained the mystics captures the mystery of the number eight. While the supernatural divine energy cannot be drawn down by human, by the human being, it can, and can only be gifted to us by God himself. God chooses to reveal the energy of the number eight only after the people invest themselves in achieving the number seven. There was an incident in this Parsha Shmini where Aharon was like, Moshe, you embarrassed me in front of everybody. You had me come up here, put these crazy clothes on, go up there and do all these crazy corporate There's no fire on the altar. It's all these offerings stacked up. Hashem didn't really forgive us anyway. I shouldn't be the Kohen Hagadol, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And as they went into the tent of meeting, that's when Hashem was like, all right, you've done everything. Bring it down. And what I love the takeaway of that being is, you know, yeah, be zealous about doing everything that you do. But ultimately, no, Hashem is the one who answers your efforts. You know, so you may be like, man, I prepared all my Shabbat and I just feel like oh, I just fell flat. And it's like. But there is merit in what you did. So regardless if your meal turned out great or if you forgot something or maybe your guests didn't show up to your table. What you did, though, is going to elicit some amazing things in the heavenlies. And again, this is why we don't just, you know, say, oh, well, I believe in God and then don't do anything and live however we want to. We have to put action with our belief because Hashem takes that and he intercalculates if you will he says oh well you put action with your speech and your thoughts so i'm going to go ahead and cause some things to happen over here and boom there you go so thus only after the people celebrated seven days of the inauguration representing the culmination of human achievement did god reveal the eighth dimension that which transcends nature and could be expressed by the will of God alone. Break free of our natural limitation is beyond our ability. For the infinity of the number eight is gifted from above. Yet eight follows seven. When we do all that is within our capacity, when we commit to the full seven days of inauguration. 
It's like, uh, when we commit to the full days of the, of the inauguration, then we are assured that on the eighth day, God will bless our efforts with his infinite ability. Adapted from the teachings of Rebbe Lakute Sikhot Shmini, Volume 3. All right. Well, that is time. Just wanted to bring down some things this week. Chapter 53 of Master Plan. Talking about time. Talking about the Hebrew calendar. Why is that so important? And... A lot of the things that are involved with how the Hebrew calendar is set up, it's not just a lunar calendar. It takes into play so many other things. And the reason we have all of this is because Hashem originally gave it to us. We apply ourselves. We apply the efforts. You know, we engage in the study of Torah. We engage in doing these things and preparing for these particular times, making sure we have our apps that have you know, hey, it's, it's, uh, you know, day, whatever the Omer time to count. It's, um, this Yom Tov is coming up this, you know, we have a lot of Yom Tovs happening right now during Sephirat to Omer during the first 33 days of the Omer. It's likened to the three weeks of mourning because there's like not marriages and haircuts going on right now because it's remembering the plague and the martyring of Rabbi Akiva's serve or Talmudim during this time. And so lots of tragedies and things like that. And most of it was because of baseless hatred, just not having any respect for our fellow. And so we want to make sure that we're working on that, really uh, focusing on uh, increasing our love and respect for one another. And, yeah, so I mean, that's what we're doing. We got uh, Jewish Independence Day. We got Holocaust Remembrance Day. We have Lag by Omer, the big bonfire day. Getting ready for Shavuot. Um, I mean, so much is going on during this time right now. So I pray that Hashem will bless you, give you um, strength and um, let's see, awareness of mind to moments of renewal as they occur to the point that you don't get despondent and depressed, but remember you can be made new in a moment. And I just want to give everyone a, a bracha that during Sephirata Omer and taking advantage of how we're using time and jumping through all these portals that we truly do sapphire, that we truly shine. Sapphire is the root of sephirat, which means to shine like a luminous stone. And we're literally moving back towards our light bodies, one omer at a time. So with all these different aspects of intercalculating ourselves, our emotions, our thoughts, our speech, our deeds, our circumstances, our jobs, our families, you know, all sorts of things we got going on. Pray that Hashem will um, bring about beauty from these things and help us grow and, and bring redemption into the world. 
We want Mashiach now. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vekaye olam natan betochenu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah.